all of my thanks. This saved the show today. Otherwise, we'd be still waiting to get started. We'd be later than we already are. No way. This is no my way. best open source feature of the day. Gedit, I didn't even realize this, has this brilliant, brilliant feature that allows you to cancel a huge, huge file opening. So I was, oh, I, really? I accidentally, we're going to play some clips from Brian Control. We're going to bust some myths. And I accidentally spelled the .mkv file .mk. That's not the same thing. No, no. Everybody knows that's the Mortal Kombat file, and that's not what you want. So I double clicked it, and gedit starts to open up because, of course, gedit is my default editor for Mortal Kombat files. Right, yep, naturally. And it, my whole system just kind of goes boom, boom, boom. I'm like, what happens? Everything slows down. Gedit sort of slowly <laughs> oh, opens up. I'm I've like, been there. what's happening? And then a little blue window of hope slides down. And it shows a loading bar with a cancel button. And so, yeah, I was able to click this. And somehow, not only did they manage to put in a cancel button, but, like, they're properly threading the application. So it actually registered. Exactly. (laughs) That's where where it's like. Yes. Finally. Yeah. So it canceled. And boom, my system came back immediately instead of opening up a multi- Megabyte. These uh, are the things we want to be able to tell Windows users and be like, this is why you need Linux. That is, I was like, thank you, GN. Thank you for being awesome in subtle ways. That, today, was my favorite open source feature. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 167 for October 18th, 2016. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's busting myths and FUD this week. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Al Wes. This show, I was, I'll, I'll be honest with you, if I was new to podcasting, I'd have butterflies in my tummy about how big the show is this Whoa. week. You just now, wouldn't know what to do with yourself. Now though, I have my good friend Alcohol, those, no, I'm kidding, actually, it's just a really Liquid great show, confidence. and I, I can't wait for us to get into it. We have... Legitimately, multiple breaking news stories yep. at the top of the show that we'll get into. So, some great project updates. We've got a really great picture from the KDE project about their long-term vision for the Plasma desktop. Then, we're going to actually get into some fascinating kernel discussion. Yeah, I know, I know. What? That is a thing, and it's going to be really interesting because we'll segue into some recent criticism that Linux has been coming under. That sounds really reasonable. And would probably make you think, if you heard this story, you'd probably think, oh, shit, what is Linux doing? Right. This is embarrassing. So we're going to bust these myths in this week's episode. Then, at the end of the show, we're going to get real with you guys. Let's talk about the role of free software in a world that just doesn't care. (laughs) People just don't care. Microsoft, Apple, they're doing good enough. These are the names people know. Let them control the computing platform. Why bother with it? It seems to be going fine. They know what they're doing. My corporate masters. Know Why what's should I best. care? So we're gonna we're gonna talk about the role of free software in a world that, at least for the most part, seems to have that opinion. So before we get started, there's one order of business that we must attend to, and that's welcoming in our virtual log time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. Hello. Oh, I love that sound. It is. It's it's like it's almost like music, except for not at all like music because it's not music. No, better than music. So it's our mumble room. Let's start with. Are you guys ready for me to just? Should I just get right into all of like the the quote unquote breaking news? You know, I have to do it. I can't. Yeah. I can't stop myself. 
This is CNN Breaking News. Oh, man, it feels good every time I have an excuse to play that. I got to admit it. So let's start with the lighter of the breaking news, and, and we'll do a little follow-up, and then we'll get into this, some of the stuff that I'm really jazzed about. But uh, we've got the first story is uh, just sort of the lighter one. We have the name for Ubuntu 1704. It's going to be dubbed. Do you know what it is, Wes? Zesty Zapus. Oh, you do? Look at you. Yep. And it's going to launch on April 2017. That's coming from. Have you looked at the Zapus? It's it's actually pretty darn cute. Oh, is it? Yeah. I have, The pictures I saw online made it look like a disgusting rat. Well, yeah, but it's, it's more like a cute little mouse-like creature. No, that's a squirrel. Mm, oh, you're right. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess go. we have to wait till 2017 to uh, find well, out. Yeah, well, I'm sure they'll go for the cuter one. That's for sure. Uh, so that is – that's sort of the lighter of the breaking news. What do you think of that name? Uh, it's, it's probably fine. pretty hard. You know what? I mean there's a lot of choices. There's fun things like zebras. You have to oh, – that's zebras. the obvious choice, right? I mean everyone thinks you're going to go for zebra. So they don't want to seem obvious. They've had a lot of kind of good interesting selections before. Um, I think – I actually think Canonical has broke – release naming to a point where I just don't care. Like when you, you know, they got these crazy names and Fedora tried to go their mm-hmm. own crazy one with the meaty hot dog or whatever it was for a while. But this, this, this shenanigans that's been going on now f- since the 1204 series or whatever. I mean, for a little while, like they made them sound like they were sturdy and sound, right. but now they're just like, now it's just an animal. Now they're just cray cray. And I think Mark's just delighting in making us all say these words. I honestly believe that's what's that's- happening. And so I'm, now I'm like, ah, this is broken for me. Mm-hmm. This I can't. Thankfully, I, they have the nice little numbers that everyone uses anyway. So I always have to like double check and be like, wow, which one? Because you know, it's like on the yeah. mirrors, it's always by yeah. the name. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, uh. yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Especially after it's been a couple of years. Yep. I just can't. Mama Room, what do you think of the name? Anybody have thoughts on naming in general? Do you care at all? Not really. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't. I just kind of need something to put on the uh, the numbers. What matters? The tag. It's the number for the mm-hmm. version that really matters. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to uh, give uh, give the room a moment to uh, do any addressing or criticisms of our while we're on the Ubuntu topic of our review in episode 439 of the Linux Action Show that came out on Sunday. We reviewed Ubuntu 16.10. Did you get a chance to see it? Yes, I did. Do you have any criticisms or uh, follow-up or any thoughts about our review? You know, I'm, I'm interested. Honestly, I... I think you guys are the ones reading the release notes and like kind of the the hype after the immediacy of the release. It really seems like they're coming coming hard on the cloud data center scale. Those are the things that I saw that yeah. stood out to me that I was excited for. Right, yeah. like I like Lexi, I like that kind of stuff. So yeah. I'm interested. And I feel like the desktop I didn't hear as much about, and I haven't tried it myself yet. So I'm kind of waiting to see. <clears throat> both 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 of your opinions are interesting, but I don't know where I fall yet. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think a lot of people in the audience are waiting. Anybody in the mum room by chance have sixteen ten? I'm going to bet no, but anybody have it installed? Yep. Oh, okay. One guy. <laughs> Excellent. All right. How have your, how's your experience been so far? Okay, two people. All right. Okay. Uh, first guy, how has your experience been so far? It's been fine. Uh, some things are broken, but nothing major. Okay. Well, you say some things like... Uh, I had some problems with uh, the video monitors, but it's an NVIDIA issue. And it, I had it with 16.04, and I had it before okay. that with 15.10. So this is like Linux release problems, yeah. Um, who's number two? Tech Mav. Mr. Mav, uh, how's your experience been so far? For the most part, pretty smooth. Um, I actually have it on my C720 and also have it on my desktop oh, nice. right now. Wow. I've actually switched back to Ubuntu from... Uh, art for a little bit for stability's sake and just to 
to streamline my workflow. Chilling out and for a bit. So far, huh? it's working well. I will say 4.8 and in a bunch of user land. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. 4.80, though, which we'll get more right, on yep, in a minute. But did. let's let's go to our next breaking news story. I tell you, I can't help myself. I'm sorry. That's too much I'm, fun. Uh, it is. You've watched a lot of CNN. I've watched a lot of news recently uh, for actually a few years now. <laughs> uh, this story is probably the most news relevant, although not the only breaking news story, but probably one we all care a lot about. Are you familiar with Veracrypt? That's the uh, they forked TrueCrypt, right? Right. When, uh, when the project current maintainer, the old maintainer, said, eh, "You I'm probably out. shouldn't use it anymore." Yeah, I'm out. Veracrypt is a fork of TrueCrypt, and one of the best things about Veracrypt is it's able to mount your old TrueCrypt volume. Oh, right, because they right. Yep. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal. So Veracrypt has been undergoing an audit, and today, as we record, just a few hours ago, the public release of the results has landed. And here's the quick and dirty about Veracrypt. Uh, Veracrypt 1.18 and its bootloaders were evaluated. This release included a number of new features, including non-Western developed encryption options and a bootloader that supports UEFI. Oh, well, thank goodness. <laughs> Freaking UEFI. Quick Labs, the people that did the audit, found eight critical vulnerabilities, three medium vulnerabilities, and 15 low or informational vulnerabilities slash concerns. Now, in the security audit industry, that that's like best practice mm-hmm. stuff and uh, consider this or could lead to. Uh, so the public disclosure of these vulnerabilities coincides with the release of Veracrypt 1.19, which fixes the vast majority of the high priority concerns. So if you are using Veracrypt and you get on version 1.19, you're pretty much protected from all of this stuff. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, really nice. And I think... I don't think we should let the, that that detail pass by. Right, the responsiveness of the project to the audit, right? That's the I, other half of the I, benefit of having it. Absolutely. Audit. It shows a strong project with an intent to keep their end users protected, and it's polling on the core strengths of open source. Mm-hmm. Those are three things behind a security product like this that matter a lot to me. So version 1.19, which fixes the vast majority of these high-priority concerns, is out. Some of these issues have not been fixed due to high complexity for the proposed fixes. But workarounds have been presented in documentation for Veracrypt to review. And here's another takeaway I have for you. If you use the ghost cipher for encryption, its implementation was fundamentally unsafe. Um, And they're ripping it out. So they're going to leave in the ability to decrypt it for now. But new volumes cannot be created with this cipher. So upgrade to Veracrypt 1.19 and move your data to a new volume if you use the ghost cipher. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll be interested to see kind of the further reviews of this and like once one one point one nine is out, what people see as they say it because, you know, it's some of these, I'm, I'm not a cryptographer. So some of this is like, a you know, you kind of have to interpret. It's a little disappointing to see that the, the ghost stuff as well as. Oh, um, it's ghost, not ghost. ghost. I'm not sure. Oh, no, you're right. There's no H. I'm just being a spaz. Thanks. It is nice to see a lot of the issues are, you know, a lot of the things that are fixing here is like the. A lot of issues pointed out are in the bootloader. Those ones I'm less concerned with. Um, so we'll see yes. how, how they continue to be responsive, see how, yep. how much was, of the critical issues they fix. We'll see. That was my takeaway, too, is the bootloader was the source of a lot of the issues, and that's not functionality I used from TrueCrypt and not functionality I would use from Veracrypt. And I, and I don't know I don't know the long-term sustainability of this project, but it is nice to see active development. I do think cross-platform encryption is a worthy goal. Um, personally, like Lux or other Linux-based encryption tools meet my needs. So I'm, I haven't used TrueCrypt or Veracrypt for many years, but it's a project, or at least the idea of which I would support. I did the same thing. I moved to Lux after the TrueCrypt back. I just said, 
Right. Done with that. Going with the built-in solution. And honestly, Lux on an external USB volume has worked remarkably well for me. And Lux uh, has essentially become the default when you check encrypt my home yep. folder on installers. You're That's almost always using Lux. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of been a, the one I've I've landed on. Uh, before we go on, because this is some some pretty cool stuff, and if anybody has any thoughts on it, I don't uh, I don't um, want to miss your input. So since we have uh, several new people in the mumble room, aka the virtual lug today, I just want to let you guys know that if you want to get my attention. Just tag me in the chat room with mum, M-U-S. So do like Chris Ass, Chris Lass, mum, colon, and then what it is that you'd like to get in on the show. And uh, I, I will try to – I will call on you as we go along just that way. Keeps things organized. Yeah. Yeah. So that's – because I know we got – actually, we got, we, got, we got a good mix of long-termers and, yeah. and newbies in there. So that's – so could, could, you know what? Good on the Veracrypt project for not only working with this audit, but again – Shipping 1.19, and this is how this works, right? The the auditors find issues. They work with the project on a on a like a, a, a gag order type basis to give them a certain amount of time, typically to fix up the problems. But if you watch TechSnap, you know that sometimes this goes differently, and yes. the projects oh, or the companies don't meet the deadline set by the auditors, and then the auditors go public while the software isn't fixed, and it's it's a real catch twenty two because it puts. A lot of pressure on the developers to actually deliver a patch, but it also gives attackers a heads up to start going after end users that are unpatched. And the fundamental issue here is even once you release an update, there's a massive lag time often for users to users actually, actually get all those updates. So, right? e- so that's still an issue even here. There's, there are guaranteed way more people on Veracrypt 1.18 than there are now on 1.19. So there's a lot of users that are exposed. So there's a window of time that attackers can take advantage of this. I will say, looking at this, uh, the PDF they made as a report of this, uh, it's, it's pretty readable. So it it's, might be something fun to check out, even if you're not super interested in crypto- ah, cryptography. Nice, nice. That'll be linked. So if you go to the story in the show notes, is that linked? Uh, yeah, there it is right there at the bottom of the article. Cool. Good stuff. Good stuff. And uh, thanks to the Veracrypt Project for taking on TrueCrypt, because that felt like such a loss there for a little bit. It did. So it was really cool. All right, Wes, I want to talk about something that's new and great from Linux Academy, our first sponsor this week on the Unplugged program. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and take advantage of their new seven-day free trial. Now, I've been a member of Linux Academy for a long time, so I can tell you it's worth it. But this gives you a chance to try it out yourself. Kick it. See what happens. Poke it. There's zero risk. Prod at it. zero risk. Bang on it. See what Linux Academy is all about. Take a look at their courseware. Take a look at their feature set. You'll experience something I think is unique because Linux Academy itself is unique. They're built by people who are really passionate about Linux. People that were developers, educators, system administrators, Linux enthusiasts. They came together and they created the Linux Academy platform. And I'm not making this up because I spoke to the owner of Linux Academy. I mean, we've, we've known each other for years now, but even before they became a sponsor, we had an email thread about how he, was, you know, how he watched JB about doing podcasts and things like that. And it, There's a great synergy. 
it was it was one of these situations where I he, he and I kind of landed on a, on a on a on a conversation thread where we got very honest, and I said, God, you know, I maybe I should have thought about doing this because it's really brilliant. It's a great way to advocate and promote the Linux platform while delivering con- in, in a content driven way because all of this is with content. They have labs and self paced courses that you can go through. They have course schedulers that work with how much time you have available. Mm-hmm. They have learning paths that give you content planned by instructors for specific career tracks. I think it's also a great business model just to show, you know, it's like they're working a lot with all these open source tools and platforms, and, and yet they're also providing a very good service that, you know, it's 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 affordable. It, you'll get a lot out of it. I think it's clever, too, like that seven-day free trial. Think about how much you can learn in seven days. You're going to get hooked, and you're going to want you're gonna want more. And now they have external profiles, too. So if you want to just sort of prove to either your employer or a potential employer all of the courseware you've taken, they've got it. They've got external profiles. They have a great community stacked full of Jupyter Broadcasting members. And uh, check out their new quick starts. About two-hour courses with uh, – you get in there and it's like – actually, it's about two hours. And it can be up to like six or eight different courses that you take in that time. So it's a really great compact way to get a burst of in- information and knowledge right into your brain organ. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplug. That's where you go to support this show and sign up for a free seven-day trial. Thanks, Linux Academy, for sponsoring the Unplugged program. Now, I go to the virtual lug to ask anybody in there, anybody a Plasma desktop user? Anybody running Plasma 5.8 or a recent version? I know uh, Tamel is, but he's not in there today. Mm-mm. Nope. He's our big KDE guy. He really, you know, he's a... You know, he represents. He does. He's he's there fierce, running the neon. Mm-hmm. Even. Yeah. yeah. Cutting edge. But we do have a little bit of a picture for those of you that might be interested. Perhaps people listening at home uh, might be a Plasma desktop mm-hmm. user. Well, we have a little snapshot of what's coming up. They say their general direction point towards professional use cases, which is... Hey, that's, that's just... That's music to my ears, it Wes. It really is. I love that. We want a plasma to be a solid tool, a reliable workhorse that gets out of the way, allowing uh, the user to get the do- job done quickly and elegantly. We want it to be faster and better quality than the competition. I like all those things. These are great goals. Now, here's how it's all going to break down. Our plan is to move from a four to three, from four to three yearly releases in 2017 and 2018, which we think strike a nice balance between our pace of development and the stabilization periods around that. Our discussion of the release schedule resulted in a following plan. I'm going to I'm going to underscore here. This is probably all subject to change, right? But here's kind of what they're thinking. Plasma 5.9, the 31st, the 31st of January 2017. So this is all 2017. Plasma 5.10 in May, Plasma 5.11 in September. So you kind of get an idea of the cadence there. Mm -hmm. Plasma 5.12 in December, Plasma 5.13 in April 2018, Plasma 5.14 LTS August of 2018. So that's our next LTS in August of 2018. So this is is interesting. So they're going from four to three yearly releases. And so you can see it stretching out. But what I think that means is sort of a, a stabilization of the landing spot for Plasma desktop users. I think this is a really, really good uh, kind of rough plan, even if they can't nail it exactly. And it's fascinating kind of being on the outside, getting to look in with this much transparency into like their their inner working. They say that they're going to keep working on the Breeze theme. They're going to double down on its refinements and existing details. They're going to work on icons across the whole uh, UI and better uh, theming for GTK. They have a feature backlog that they plan to get on, including perhaps support for the global menu, similar to the way Unity or Mac OS do it. Hey, hey. What do you think of that? 
you know, I'm, I don't use it myself, but uh, KDE is already so customizable. I can see why, you know, if, if Blasma had this feature as well, I think that'd be great. Also, probably not a surprise to us, uh, they're working more on Wayland. Uh, KWIN brings home almost feature-complete Wayland display server now, which is, remember how, remember how you have to write your own Wayland display server? Wow, what a task for these desktop environments, just to go from being a client to have to be the server, which they say already works in most use cases but hasn't seen a lot of real-world testing and lacks certain features that X11 users expect right now or ones they want to offer on modern hardware. So I like that too. And, of course, they're going to continue to work on Plasma Mobile. But, you know, typically we could easily say, oh, no, another project Mm -hmm. that's focusing on mobile. But... um, I actually feel like being three or four down on the list of things to do is just about the right spot. It's something you want to keep working on. It's something you don't want to lose too much uh, ground on. Right. But it probably shouldn't be the primary focus of your project, at least at this stage until something ships that makes it – That makes worth. it make sense, right? Yeah. So I think I, – again, I feel like they've got this online services. They plan uh, improvements and in integration of online services and dependency handling for assets installed from the store. They have a developer recruitment outreach they plan to double down on as well. Go help them out. I yeah right yeah. I really think that this project is firing all cylinders right now. Doesn't it feel like it? It, it does. It really does. Especially with that Wayland stuff. I'm excited to see that. It feels like it. I don't know. Maybe this time next year we'll be talking about how great Katie, you know, Plasma is on Wayland. Well, five eight is a solid release. It, I mean, right. I I still have it. Uh, no, I don't have it on any systems anymore. That's right. I had to. I, I did. A, I did a full full cord install for Ubuntu sixteen ten. And that was that was a serious process. Um, before we move on, TechMev, I wanted to circle back. You had more to say about the sixteen ten deployment. Go ahead. TechMev, TechMev. If you tag me, you sh- hello. No. Hmm. Our, our loss. You know, if I could do voices, I would just oh, pretend to man. be one you could of be them. Be an entire mumble room. I c- that is worth thinking about. I won't about. say a thing. Yeah. Uh, there we go. Hello, Tech Control, Man. Control, not shift. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you wanted, to, you wanted to loop back to the 1610 stuff because uh, we're about to uh, talk a little more Ubuntu. So, this would sort of be a good spot to follow up. Oh, no. I was just, you were asking about 5.8 for KDE, and I switched. I was on 5.8 uh, Plasma before I went to the 1610 of Ubuntu. Mm, okay. Oh. And uh, what were your thoughts? I mean, the Plasma, that was actually the best experience of Plasma I've had in a long time. It's very smooth, um, and I like how they are really focusing on integrating Breeze across the board. Yeah, yeah um, they've, done, that's, they've done really good at that. And also, it was pretty cool to see uh, the Android Connect stuff built in. Did you, did you get to play with that at all? Yeah, very cool. I did some, yes. Yeah, that's... And works great with my Motorola. Yeah, that is... That is super nice, and it really feels like the future uh, when you're getting there. All right. Thank you, TechMav, for the follow-up now. While we're talking about Ubuntu stuff. This is CNN Breaking News. I can't. I'm sorry. I'm it's, sorry. It's okay. It's just, it's, I'm how, not saying anything. How many, how, many day, how many times do we have, like, three or four really big stories break in, in the Linux world? Right. And thank God they're just not about politics. So this is – when you hear about this at first, you're going to say, oh, well, great. Red Hat's already doing this. Seuss Enterprise is already doing this. What's the big news? Ubuntu, once again, doing their own thing. Actually, all of that is wrong. But you're probably familiar with the concept of hot fixing or hot patching or live patching a running Linux kernel. 
Red Hat has um, their thing to do it. SUSE has their thing to do it. Yep. The K patch and K splice, respe- respectively. Right, I believe. there's that Oracle proprietary ones. Yes. It's a big issue in the enterprise, especially you want that uptime? when you're running VMs or when you got a bunch of containers. You got a host machine that maybe has 30 containers on it, or even five containers. You, to update that running kernel and get it secure, you've got to restart all of those subsystems as well. And it's just, it often just goes undone. Right. And, and then you're left vulnerable. And so Red Hat worked really hard on their solution for this. They've really they've put they put a lot of time, a lot of engineers in it. They're very very proud of it. And very shortly after that, Seuss also said, "Well, hey, we've been working on this. We're very proud mm-hmm. of this." And just just behind the scenes, all of these companies now have have reached out from their PR people to tell me all about it, to tell me all of the different things, to make sure that I know everything about it. Uh, so they're all very – each, each of these of companies have, have been very – yes, very wanted to make sure they get the message out there. But I actually think Canonical has the best implementation. They might be the last of the party. But, but sometimes I, that's a good thing, right? I, and this is something that you listening at home with your one computer or many computers can use. So you don't, don't need ha- an enterprise plan. You I don't have to be a Red Hat enterprise user or a SUSE enterprise user. If you have Ubuntu on your laptop or your desktop – it just has to be 1604 on x86, and you can do this. So this is the ability to patch critical security vulnerabilities live in your kernel without rebooting. And uh, this is what they're rolling out today. It's called the Canonical Live Patch Service. Ubuntu 1604 LTS's 4.4 kernel includes an important new security capability in Ubuntu. The ability to modify the running Linux kernel code. Think about it, That's like the code in RAM. Mm-hmm. This is amazing. Without rebooting through a mechanism called kernel live patch. Today, Canonical has publicly launched the Canonical live patch service, an authenticated, encrypted, signed stream of Linux live patches that apply to 64-bit Intel AMD architectures of the Ubuntu 16.04 LTS release. Have to be running the kernel 4.4 generic, I think, or something. Can't be running your own patch version. Addressing the highest and most critical security vulnerabilities without requiring a reboot wow. for it to take effect. Now, again, SUSE and Red Hat, so you're okay. This is nothing new. Canonical's not the first to think of this. Why should I care? They're doing a couple of things really interesting. First of all, crazy easy to set up. You do have to create an account on their thing, but it's really it's a it's it's a really interesting way. It is, a, it is a clever take on setting up something as complicated as kernel live patching. I'll just put it that way. So I want to cover a couple of interesting things about it and a couple of limitations. The live patch service is available for generic and low latency flavors of the 64-bit oh, nice. kernel. Yeah. So you got to have x86-64 AMD-64 builds of Ubuntu 16.04 LTS's kernel, which is 4.4. Canonical live patches work on 16.04 LTS servers and desktops on physical machines, virtual machines, and in the cloud. The safety, security, and stability firmly depends on unmodified Ubuntu kernels and network access because you got to connect to the service. Mm-hmm. The ups. This is why I, this is this is where they start to hint why I think they have the superior solution here. This is the first hint of it. The upstream Linux live patch functionality. Upstream live patch functionality is currently limited to 64-bit x86 architecture at this time. However, IBM is working on support for Power 8 nice. and System 390 mainframes. <laughs> well, I guess they want that uptime there. And uh, there's also active uptime development, uh, upstream, I'm sorry, development on uh, ARM64. Hey, that's cool. Yeah, that could be big. Yep. Um, so that's 
where this is really different is this is an upstream thing that's already in kernel starting with kernel 4.4. Every live patch by Canonical is rigorously, they say, tested in rigorously tested in Canonical's in-house continuous integration, continuous delivery system. They do a quality assurance, which tests hundreds of combinations of live patch kernels, hardware and physical machines and virtual machines. But well, again, you are pushing out updates directly to people's kernels. So this has got to be... take that pretty seriously. This yeah. is a whole other level. They aren't willing to reboot, so they are taking this pretty seriously, right? I mean, if they're going to the, trust your patches. And, and how, how they do a little additional testing is interesting, and I'm going to get to that, but let me just tell you about this. The canonical live patch service is intended to address the high and critical severity Linux kernel security vulnerabilities as identified by the Ubuntu security notices and the CVE databases. We, if you watch TechSnap, we talk about this stuff all the time. And so there's a certain level of CVE vulnerabilities, and when they reach that, they'll do, they'll do live patches. There are some limitations to the kernel's live patching technology. Some Linux kernel code paths cannot be safely patched while running. They say they'll do their best to supply canonical live patches for high and critical vulnerabilities in a timely fashion whenever possible, there may be occasions when traditional kernel upgrades and reboots might still be necessary, right. and they will communicate that through notifications. So. One question. Yes. Do they have a catchy song advertising this service? No! <laughs> because I don't, I mean, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can deal if they don't. They, uh, it's funny because uh, when they get to the comparison, that's one of the, th- okay, I'll get there. You're, I'll get there. Uh, but this is the, this is the details I think that applies most to people listening that aren't in the enterprise. Right. So if you're a home user or a, or a small business, this is the stuff here you're going to care about. You do need a subscription, possibly. And you definitely need an account. The Canonical Live Patch Service provides a secure encrypted authenticated connection, which um, seems pretty necessary when you're live yes. patching your kernel. Yeah, I'll just take any old bit stream. That's fine. Yeah, Throw it into RAM. Connect over HTTP. We're good. Uh, to ensure that only properly signed live patch kernel modules and most importantly the right modules are delivered directly to your system with extreme quality and high testing, they do have a subscription service if you have a lot of systems. But Canonical is providing the live patch service to community users of Ubuntu at no charge for up to three machines, desktop servers, virtual machines, and cloud instances. Well, damn, I got way more droplets than that. Yes. But if you got up to three machines, you can play with this live patch. your house. Or that's your three critical or, servers. Or, you know, maybe my three, my three droplets I never want to reboot, but I want to keep them secure. That actually might work. The other thing is maybe you do it all. You know, you're using their fancy little XD thing. You get three big, contain- yeah. big droplets and, and I, you run containers on those. Oh, man, yeah. Uh, and here's the other thing that I think is fascinating about the free mechanism. Because this is also how Canonical is sussing out if these patches are going to blow your system up. And this is, I mean, you interpret as you want, but they say a randomly chosen subset of the free users of Canonical's live patch will receive their Canonical live patches slightly earlier than the rest of the free users or the subscription users as a lightweight Canary testing mechanism benefiting all canonical live patch users. So the free users, some of them will randomly get selected to occasionally receive the updates before the other users. That's going to be you every time. You know it. You know it, Chris. That's you every time. (laughs) Ah, You know, to be fair, this is pretty common. This is how Microsoft rollouts uh, major uh, Windows updates. Once, uh, Once they get enough data back that the Canary live patches apply safely, all canonical live patch users... Receive their updates. Hmm. So that's... Do your part. Yeah, I guess. Freeloader. Yeah. 
Freeloader. <laughs> okay, and then, of course, the big question, what about the source? What about the source? The source code of live patch modules is found here, and we have it linked in the show notes. They got that all published. The source of the Canonical live patch client is part of Canonical's li- landscape system management product and is commercial software. I see. Now, does the inter- I don't think anyone in the enterprise gives one no, shit about they that. Don't care. Yeah, well, they, have, they have enterprise agreements to protect them. So refer they don't need to, to our topic later in the show about that. Um, now, how does this compare to the stuff that Oracle's doing, to the stuff Red Hat's doing, to the stuff SUS is doing? The concepts are largely the same. But the technical implementations and commercial terms are very different. Oracle's case splice uses its own technology. It's right. not upstream. Right. Red Hat Enterprise Linux and SUSE currently use their own homegrown K-Patch and K-Graph implementations, respectively. Canonical's live patching uses the upstream Linux kernel live patching technology. That's awesome. K-Splice is free but unsupported for Ubuntu desktops and only available for Oracle Linux and Red Hat Enterprise Linux servers with an Oracle Linux Premier support license, which is $2,300 a year uh, a node. Of course it is. $2,300 a node. It's a little unclear how to subscribe to the Red Hat Enterprise kernel live patching, but it appears that you need to first be a Red Hat Enterprise Linux customer and then enroll in their special interest group through your technical account manager, which you have to have one, which requires a Red Hat Enterprise Linux server premium subscription, which is $1,300 a node a year. Wow. And then the SUSE live patching is available as an add-on, but to SUSE Linux Enterprise Server 12, we have to get a priority, priority support subscription at... $1,500 a note a year, but you do get that free music video. Hey, yeah. So that's got to be worth Hot something. Patch. I mean, you're obviously relevant if you've got a music video. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, hey, look, everybody, they're relevant. Uh, then Canonical. There's, they still owe a lot of money to those, the people that made that video. That's where the subscription price comes from. So when you, yeah, <laughs> they got to pay that out. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you do decide, if you decide to subscribe to the Canonical Live Patch, if you've got more than three systems, you're paying $150 a note per year. Wow. Well, okay. Well, that's. That's more reasonable. Yeah. And presumably you have to care about these nodes enough that you want to and live really, patch, right? So. If you have six systems, you could probably go make two accounts. I'm not saying, but you're just saying. Yeah. So this seems to be a pretty huge release from Canonical, even though a lot of people will dismiss it as, ah, that's that's been done before. But I don't think... It's been done like this. I really think what they did is they waited for the upstream code to just have it. Right. They didn't want to. They didn't want to invent their own system. Yeah. Which probably means that uh, you know anybody that's running four four could probably invent their own method of doing this. But I think this yeah. is a pretty competitive. Offering. I also think it's a you know it's like it's not at least while it's competitive. See how it used, but I could definitely see in the future it getting thrown over the open source fence. And then here's the other thing that I think it sh- it shows. It shows why Ubuntu is so much more popular on the cloud-type VPS instances than SUSE or Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Would you think about it? It's almost a joke to suggest that you go buy a VPS and run SUSE or Red Hat Enterprise. Right? Maybe CentOS, for sure. Yeah, yeah totally. But SUSE Enterprise Linux or Red Hat Enterprise yeah. Linux, which are built for servers designed to run on 24-7 workloads, it's a joke to think you go get a VPS with one of those on there. You can find them, yep. but it like nobody does it. No. And And... Why is that? If you look at those prices that we just talked about, it's a if you if you decide to go with this on your production VPS with Ubuntu on there, you likely did not a 
pay for the version of Ubuntu that's on there. Nope. And B, you may not even have a support subscription. And C, if you decide to get this live patching, it's 150 bucks versus fifteen hundred bucks or thirteen hundred bucks. I mean, I mean, really. So uh, Red Hat would you'd have to get the you'd have to get the twenty three hundred subscription from Oracle and the tw- and the thirteen hundred dollars subscription from Red Hat. And with SUSE, you have to get the fifteen hundred dollars subscription and only works on Linux Enterprise Server twelve. Jeez. And my, who knows, but my gut tells me that likely the next LTS will also support this. So they'll do this for every LTS. And now you look at a system here that's sitting in production, I start thinking to myself, boy, I wouldn't mind that. I don't like rebooting these ever. Mm-hmm. And 150 bucks, that's really not that much, especially if it's only a couple. And hey, you get three free. Yeah. Pretty neat. Anybody in the mumble room want to jump in before we move on? I think, does that wrap up? Are breaking. I think it's all the breaking news. All the news. breaking news. Yeah. yeah. So that's that is it. Oh, actually, no, it's there, not. There is one. There more is thing. one more, and I won't do the soundboard because I've been obnoxious with it. Um, Scraper, you have a you have a uh, let's see, Scrappy Paw. I'm not even sure what Scrapjaw. Scrapjaw. You have a comment about reboots. Go ahead. Yeah, you guys being in a studio that you only broadcast from, you know, once, uh, you know. A day. I know you have live things that are running throughout twenty four seven, but wouldn't you shut down unused machines? You know, you would think. Um, the big issue is with HDMI video capture, and God, I can't wait till we move away from HDMI. There is you mean a DisplayPort everywhere. I, I hope there is a there is like a, a sequence you have to go through for your capture and your output to see each other, and. It has to be timed just right. And when you have multiple systems, so we have we have three doing HDMI in and like we have like four or five HDMI outs. And they're just they're just a catastrophe to work with. And so we generally what we do is we run the systems in like a, a, a low power mode where the display is still sending a signal, but like the screens are off, the hard drives are, are spun down or something like that, but we leave them running twenty four seven just because um it, the, the the schedule of of doing daily productions and sometimes two shows a day is tight enough. There's not quite enough room for troubleshooting that because sometimes troubleshooting that can take like 45 minutes to an hour. And there are a lot of times where you're showing up here and then 10 minutes and you need to be on the air. Every now and then, that, yeah, that, that does that does tend to happen from time to time. Most of the time I'm here before a show, but sure. at, there have definitely been times where uh, there was one time for Tech Talk today where uh, – Thank God for Rikai because he's a miracle worker. I I don't know I don't know how he knew I wasn't just not coming in, but somehow his beard spider sense <laughs> was tingling, and he knew that I was on the road, but was not going to make it on time. Mm-hmm. And I I legitimately don't know how he knew, but he knew because it could have been I I guess because I don't ever just not show up. I guess that's how he knew. I guess he knew because I know I always make it, and so he's like, but he must have looked at the clock and said, "There's no way he's going to get." So he came down in the studio and got stuff going, and I literally walked in the door and sat down and started the show. And that was like the tightest it had ever been. And it is. Wow. And if there's any outage right there, I spend the first half hour of the show troubleshooting that. And, and then, then I'm all. Then you're grumpy. I am wrecked. I'm wrecked by the end of that. Yep. I'm wrecked. So, yeah. That, and you don't want to start a show all wrecked. No. Okay. So we do have one more breaking yeah, news. Hey. This is CNN breaking news. Dun, 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 dun. This is something I think I'll be using in the near, near Me future. Me too. This is really cool. It's a new tool that lets you easily install Ubuntu Touch OS on your mobile device. It's a tool developed by Marius Quebec? Marius? Marius? What do you think on that last name? Quebec? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, okay. And it's called the Magic Dash Device Dash Tool. 
The Magic first, Device Tool. The first stable version, Magic De- Device Dash Tool 1.0, is now available to everyone and promises a uh, very simple and uh, easy to use batch tool for installing Canonical's Ubuntu Touch, as well as Android, CyanogenMod, or Phoenix OS. So it's not just an Ubuntu well, Touch tool. You'll be able to replace your mobile operating system on your device with any of the following. CyanogenMod. Okay, I just said all that. I don't know why they repeat that. Oh, 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 there is one caveat I wanted to know about, though. Uh, they don't support the versions of images that have the Google apps. Okay. So here's the devices, though. This is what matters. The BQ Aquarius uh, E4.5, the BQ Aquarius E5 HD, BQ Aquarius M10, BQ Aquarius M10 FHD, etc. So the US MX Pro, MUS Pro 5. Now we're starting to cook with gas, though. The Nexus 4, the Nexus 5, hey, the hey. Nexus 7 2013 Wi-Fi, the Nexus 7 2013 LTE, the Nexus 7 2012 3G, the Nexus 10, the OnePlus, and the Fairphone 2. May not work. You don't think so? Well, that's what that says. Oh, does it? Just at the bottom there. Oh. The Fairphone 2. That's okay. I don't think that's probably... No, it's uh, not a big deal. The Nexus 5, though. That's a big deal. Also, the Nexus 7. I've Mm -hmm. always wanted to do it on that, but I just don't have the time. And this thing, it also... It can do backups of your your machine. It can do restorations. It can unlock or lock the bootloader. And it also supports installing the TWRP recovery image. This is amazing. Yep. You know, I've seen some similar tools for Windows that I think it's it's a it's a nice niche for people where it's like, well, maybe you flash your phone or need to do this like once, maybe a year. And so, if you're not like ready to jump down in the the ADB shell or any of that, here's a handy tool that you can use to do that. Or honestly, uh, for me, it's it's not that I haven't used ADB, but I haven't used ADB in so long that I would I would spend enough time googling around and reading XDA forms that I just don't want to spend that time. This thing already knows how to do it. Because what I really want is the end result. I don't. I don't really care. Yeah. You're not developing for Android. You're not making it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm that guy. Mm-hmm. I'm that guy. I, I admit it. When it comes to this kind of stuff, I'm that guy. But I think this is a super positive development, and it's a tool I'll be. I think just as soon as my Pixel gets here, uh, I'll be using this and t- trying out a bunch of us. Yeah, on this got the Nexus Pixel. 5. I did. I did. Which one? Uh, I got the smaller one. Oh yeah, good call. I mean. A, it just seems I don't have huge hands. It's I, all about like do you keep it in your pocket? Hand. Do you yeah. keep it? That's what it's about. I got a four point seven inch phone now, and I'm all about that. It's in my pocket right now. I didn't even know I had to feel it. I had to touch my pocket. You're comfortable. I've literally been sitting here for how long? I didn't even know that phone's in my pocket. That's what I'm talking about. See the six P. It's a brick, dude. Totally. So that's interesting. Did you get the one twenty eight? I did. I did. I'm. I don't know if I'll need it or not. But so wait, I wait. plan to have the phone for a while. When, when did they? When did you say you're getting it? Because I went for the 128, I don't get it till like mid-November. So a month or so. That's rough, man. Yep, it's rough. Mid-November, huh? Jeez. Yeah. There, have you read any of the reviews that came out today? Yeah. That's positive. They're positive. They're positive. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it's the Android phone to get right now if you're going to get an Android phone. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and I need a new phone, and yeah, you do. I, it it you seems nice only, enough. Not only do you have a Nexus Five, but you your phone is busted the f <laughs> up, dude. It is bad. Yep. Well, I've been waiting for this. Have uh, you scratched yourself with that yet? Thankfully, no. <laughs> but it is dangerous. It is definitely dangerous. That's probably just because you it don't may make explode. many calls. <laughs> it's made by LG, but it may explode. You also are constantly charging that thing. I've noticed. That's true. And uh, that's one of the things that come See, back on the early yes. reviews. By the way, uh, User Air 7 just came out where we gave you our full take on the Pixel if you are interested, as well as the absolute very best way to get 
great audio on Linux. We talk about that and a few other uh, tidbits that uh, I think are actually – I think it was a really good episode Ooh, of User I'm Air 7. I'm excited to listen to it. User Air 7 is out where we do talk about the Pixel. So I cannot wait to try it out. I'm kind of on the fence myself. I think I'm going to let things go for a yeah. while. I'm well, good When for you're a in a position, you know, if you have a good phone that you yeah. like, it's not necessarily yeah. worthwhile. Also, I am, I am personally, until I am proven otherwise, I am an avid believer in optical image stabilization. I know that they have sure. incredible post-processing, but physically having a lens that floats, I think, is unbeatable. And so when pictures are a big part of it, I know it's got a great camera and a great sensor, and so they say, and the reviews do seem to back that up. But it does lack actual optical image stabilization. That, to me, in 2016, nearly 2017, it's going to be your phone in 2017. Sure. That's a bit of a yeah. That's a bit of a bummer. I guess we'll see. We can do some uh, photo shoots here in the studio. Yeah, I mean, so far the reviews have been pretty good. I mm-hmm. loved, and the, and the video they say it really is impressive. So yeah, you know what? Why don't we take a moment and why don't we thank our sponsor Ting? Go over to Ting. Actually, you know what? I can't believe it. I almost just, I almost Whoa. just, I almost forgot to say Whoa. you could put Linux in your Linux.ting.com. Linux. Linux.ting.com is not only good, a good way to support the show, but it'll give you $25 off a device. Or if you bring a device like a Pixel, it'll give you $25 in service credit. I would really consider this if you're going to get the Pixel too, because Ting's no contract, no determination fee, and you only pay for what you use. That's really the secret sauce to Ting is if you can be kind of clever, if you can download your podcasts, over Wi-Fi or what I do on Spotify. I have Spotify on my phone, but I download the tracks on Wi-Fi and I play them offline because I like the super crazy extreme mm-hmm. quality anyways. I can, I, so I just use – I just there's just like really four or five things you can do differently and you can save so much money with Ting. Yes. They just take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes and they add them all up. And whatever it is at the end of the month, that's all you have to pay. Ting keeps rates simple. We don't make you pick a plan. Instead, you just use your phone as you normally would. How much you use determines how much you pay each month. You can have as many devices as you want on one account. That's good, because when you use more, you pay less per minute, message, or megabyte of data. Your usage, plus $6 per active device on your account, plus taxes, is your monthly bill. Simple. That's what we mean when we say... Mobile. That makes sense. They also have incredible customer service and a fantastic dashboard. You get to speak to a real human being when you call customer service. You're not playing that game. And if you do end up with something like the Pixel from the Play Store, you can get a Ting SIM card for $9. You just put it in there. You activate it. There's no contract, no determination fee. Try it out. See how it works for you. Why not give it a go? In fact, I I don't know. I haven't looked at the Pixel, but I bet you could choose CDMA or GSM because Ting's got both networks. And if the Pixel's out of your uh, price range, because, geez, it is an expensive phone. Yes. I bought two. Did you really? Yeah, for, the oh, wife's for lady. getting one, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, I mean, and that's nice for charging and all that kind of stuff. That's a huge thing. All we'll USB-C. Consistent USB-C household. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I can understand. The future. Yeah, if you want to save some cash, Ting has our semi-recent blog post from the 11th about five wise smartphone cho- choices that are under $200. So if you still want to get a smartphone that has some functionality, that's going to get some updates, maybe has a nice camera, they've got a post about that, too. So that's – and that's – Super nice, because you can either bring your device or grab a device directly from Ting. It's unlocked. They just make it so easy. Linux.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So do you remember a couple of weeks ago, there were some headlines where Linux – went essentially like this. Linus admits that Linux 4.8 had buggy crap, and he raged against it, saying there was no effing excuse to knowingly kill a running kernel 
And uh, he talks about how he it was his bad for taking some patches from Andrew right before the 4.8 release. Do you remember all of this, Wes? Does this ring a bell? Yeah, I believe we touched on it here on this show just yeah. a little bit. So what I want to do is I want to take a moment and I want to go a little bit deeper and talk about what they're actually discussing here because this turns out to be a topic that is now giving a lot of Linux critics some serious fodder. And if you heard this, you would think, oh, geez. If, you, if you're not familiar with intimate details, you might think, geez, what the hell is Linus doing? You know, this is Linus. He's raging out once again, and he's acting out of emotion, and he's Bad doing— Bad press for the Linux kernel. Yeah, and it's—I it's, don't know a lot about this, Wes, but I got some clips I want to play. You've had some time to think about it. It's about this bug underscore on that led to the, the Linux kernel stopping, and we've got a post linked in the show notes by Samsung's open source group that say that they uh, they are working. This is something they're working on. They say it's a top priority for Linus to to change this bug. What what are we talking about, Wes? What do we what is bug on? What are we talking about? Bug on is a kernel function or or macro that uh, at least in some ways is used when is when you see you know when you see a, a kernel bug where you're in a position where and and this is something they talk about in this in this thread as we'll talk about you know when the kernel's in a position where it there's no meaningful error recovery. It, right now, it, there's a current trend where it gets used a lot by kernel developers in development. Um, so it's a kind of like in other terms, uh, it's similar to like an assert statement where you're basically saying like, well, at this point, everything that I'm doing, this should be true. If it's not true, then it's violating one of my assumptions. Going forward, it doesn't make sense to continue because you know my, my axioms have been violated. Uh, it gets used a lot as a, in development when you haven't written error code, you don't know what error code to write yet, you're exploring. Basically, this trigger is like, oh, well, the my new feature clearly didn't work. Crash the kernel. We get a stack trace. You can begin debugging. Um, sometimes this does then go through into the the real kernel, and it does have a place. And then part, part of why I think this thread is interesting is it's kind of you get to see the discussion of like, yeah. when should this be used? When do we crash the kernel? Uh, and so it's sort of a discussion around should it be easy to crash the kernel? Because really, you know, and, and, and Linus is, I think, in a good way, concerned about, I mean, it's not like stupid bragging uptime concerns but there's lots of places like do you remember the bad press during when windows 10 rollout when those uh, there was like hospitals in africa or other places where their machines were rebooted absolutely you know problems were caused there are situations not in the data center where you don't want to go down or you want want to go down the admin to be able to choose to go down yeah and so you know they're very concerned about if there's anything we can do to avoid a situation you know by all means if you're the file system code and you can't you know, you're going to write damaged data to the drive. Stop what you're doing. But it doesn't also, in that case, it, it might not mean that you absolutely have to crash the whole kernel. So this is what's fascinating about this particular issue, because what you just said there seems absolutely reasonable to me and seems like a likely use case scenario for Linux's number one deployment, which is the server. However, Linux critics have taken this and spun this as, well, this is Linus sick and tired of bugs crashing his buggy kernel, and they're just paper machine over the problem and they're just suppressing the issue and if you watch this ep- this week's episode of BSD Now a popular guest Brian Contrell was on and they talked about this very issue now, Brian is I, I, I love every episode of BSD Now it's that great. comes in it really is because he is he is such a great Linux critic because he really sticks it I mean he's so outspoken I love watching him he's very opinionated and he's often right on the money he's a Terribly smart guy. Yeah, and so he tears in to this particular issue on this week's episode of BSU Now. I fully recommend you watch the entire interview. It, yeah. We're going to play like 
two minutes from a much longer interview. But this is him talking about them switching over from this bug on to something less dramatic that doesn't stop the kernel. And this is what's becoming the sort of external community take on this particular issue. And music. <laughs> you need to be Go. like have all sharp objects away from you. They are going to use like I know – Said can fix this bug. Yes. Like, no, no, no. Said cannot fix this bug. So they're going to change every bug on to warn on. And it's like, there I fixed it. It's like, okay. And so now, if you actually have a Linux kernel programmer that has, I mean, that the, 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 the poor right-thinking individual that is living in the ghetto of Linux just trying to do the right thing and has an actual legit bug on, if this happens, please panic the system, that is now just going to be turned into a warn-on, mm-hmm. and now you've actually introduced bugs effectively in systems or certainly made any bugs that do exist in the subsystems much more difficult to debug. It's like, God, how dare you? Come on. I mean, aren't you old enough to – I mean, like Torvalds and I are about the same age. Like, do you still have this many hormones running through you that you think this is a good idea? I mean, don't you realize that – I mean, aren't we getting older and wiser? But, you know, whatever. So, hey, worn on with ButterFS. What could possibly Oh, be God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Twitch. I do love the – I got the – and the whole, like, the, the – it's okay. Soft. System D will recover it. <laughs> yes, don't you get the, you know, there's a, there's a, there, you know, Chris, there comes a point where it's just like, you're clearly, you're just piling on here. You're just I'm trying sorry. to, like, sorry. like, can I actually make him pass out? I mean, are you, are you two playing sort of a drinking <laughs> game? Are you going to see if you can actually, uh, I think we have a betting game on the side here. At a time here. I, yeah. <laughs> How long before we can make Cantrell stroke out live on the <laughs> Exactly. Like, is it normal? My, my vision is kind of fading right now. So he's so frustrated with uh, Linux that he's about to he's about to stroke out. And so you you could hear a couple of a couple of assumptions that he's working from. And, and it's not just Brian. Uh, Brian uh, is is just sort of representing an opinion that is forming. And I I wanted to address a couple of assumptions that I think he's working from when he makes these statements. You might have noticed that uh, in his world, Linus the man is irrational and makes code commits based on his emotions, or as he put it, his hormones, not rational code commits, which I think is probably not the correct assumption to make. But if you if you believe that to be a fact, you could see how he's built a foundation of assum- an assumption there. Another assumption that kind of crops up in his, and you'll hear another example here, is everyone working on Linux basically kind of is just doing it their own way. They're doing it for fun. And it kind of ignores the fact that the vast majority of commits to Linux are from business enterprise developers who are getting paid by their company. They're, they're serious to do these. people. Um, and I want to, before we completely respond, I want to I want to talk about this particular aspect. The way this kind of gets spun and becomes becomes the reality of the situation. And he continues to talk about sort of the pervasive bad thinking that's in Linux that led to things like ButterFS. And I want to talk about that too. Just, mm-hmm. Did you, before we go to that, did you want to interject on the, on his, on his take on the bug on thing? Well, I, I think him highlighting the said point there, they, they do mention that that is mentioned um, by a contributor, uh, but they, what, what Linus says, that's not that implementation that they would go with. And then there's some debate about how it's used. But I think what's really missed is just, that the culture has not been using bug on, and in this case it's VM bug on, as a like, 
oh no, we, you know, like we messed up the CPU stack and we need to crash. So it's not, it hasn't been used in this situation. So, and what Linus is really concerned about here is like minimizing that, right? And so like- The issue is, should, is that once something went out at scale in production, it got used in a different way than they intended. And this one in particular crept by in like an RC8 patch level, right? So it's like, it wasn't during the regular merge window. It didn't get all the regular testing it should have. And like, it's okay, right? Yes, there he, are he times to crash himself. Yeah, and yeah. he admitted it. It's probably his mistake. And I think what he's just saying is that it's really it's it's a discussion now about like what are the semantics of crashing the kernel. We we should probably make it so that the developer like that it doesn't get confused with how you debug. It but doesn't get confused with. If you had heard that criticism on its surface from a, an intelligent person like Brian, I I would think God Linux is really falling apart. Right. I mean Brian has great credentials. He's a super smart guy. And he's, he's a right CTO about, of Joint. And I think his argument is right in that like. No, you should. I mean, you should have asserts, right? You should have what I think in Solaris he says it's verified. Um, you should have these things that say like, you know, if if the kernel memory algorithms are working correctly, this is this, and if not, we need to crash. And Linux does have those. And this is a conversation about where do you set that level and what are the semantics of crashing. I also, uh, I mean, I love all. I love I love Alan and Chris and and I think Brian's great too. But I love it when they when they poke fun at System D. Because I feel like I don't, I don't even need to respond to that. Because what I'm going to do is is like a tiger. I'm going to I'm going to sit back and watch my prey, and I'm going to watch them take shots at systemd for the next couple of years. And mark my words, five years from now, BSD will be fully rolling out their systemd equivalent. They won't don't call it that. They will be they'll make sure not to call it that. Right. But the reality is, systemd, despite what we might like to think in the Linux community, not a new idea. No, no, it's not. Sun was working on. Um, uh, is it SMF? SMF, yeah. Yeah. That's and of, of course, Apple had LaunchD. Mm-hmm. And, uh, con- I remember la- using LaunchD con- to configure services before SystemD was even a thing. It was like, yeah. hey, this is pretty sweet. I believe there are two, if not three, projects in the BSD community already to replicate SystemD-like functionality. It's just none of them are necessarily mainstream. Mm-hmm. It's coming. So just as a, just sit back as a tiger and watch your prey as they poke, poke fun at SystemD now. And then when they will roll it out, and the, all the all of the logical backflips they'll have to do to explain why it's nothing like systemd. So, but let's go on about the pervasive bad thinking in Linux. This is a common, this is a common BSD culture projection onto the Linux community that Brian manages to put in really great summed up words. And so, this is a great point to sort of look at something that I think is a common misconception. No, they actually won't. Uh, and I, the other thing I think that is that is that is actively happening. To Linux, I think this is the kind of the peril that they run, is that right-thinking individuals are not attracted to that culture. I don't think he means like politically right. I think he means right brain. They're talking about right-brained people earlier in this. So right brain versus left brain. The, the thing is, he's saying, is that Linux doesn't attract the right type of critical thinkers. Right-thinking individuals are not attracted to that culture, and so people. Even if you're interested in file systems, are you going to go in your 22? Are you going to go work on ButterFS? Are you going to go work on ZFS? If you are interested in operating systems, are you going to go to a culture that is replacing bug-ons with warn-ons? Or are you going to go to the BSDs or to Illumos or what have you, where you've got cultures that are not just more innovative, but also more rigorous in their thinking? So cultures are subjective for the eye of the beholder. But if I'm 22 years old and I want to get a career in this field, I'm probably going to go with the platform that has... The demonstrably, what is the word? Demonstrably. Demonstrably larger deployment in the server space. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, think about it. If you, if you, if you want an employable skill, 
it's obvious. The choice is obvious. So I, I kind of disagree with the premise to begin with. But his core, his core message is the way the culture is, the professionalism, that's more appealing in BSD. And people that think that way – Or Lumos. Yeah, or Lumos, which is, which is his baby. Interested in operating systems, are you going to go to a culture that is replacing bug-ons with warn-ons? Or are you going to go to the BSDs or to a Lumos or what have you where you've got the, the, uh, cultures that are not just more innovative but also more rigorous in their thinking? And I think that you know, in an all-open-source world, there's total freedom of choice for technologists. And the differentiators become almost the, the, the cultures, and these cultures become self-perpetuating. And so I think, I think there's there's a danger that you end up with with butterfesses over and over and over again. Yeah, um, and I, I mean, I, I just wonder how many of these is it going to take before people kind of like connect the dots. That okay, let's talk about that point. How many times are we going to screw something up before we admit that sometimes we just we think that there's bad ideas and we should just move on? Mm-hmm. I think he's kind of right. I think. You still have ButterFS defenders out there who are going to argue with this very moment in this show, yep. even though it's so obvious to everybody else watching from like a distance that if you're an enterprise and you have serious data needs, you're not yeah, going to deploy not ButterFS. What that system is worked out to be for. Yeah, and it has enabled an entire product category for some companies out there. I will say it is interesting, though, just given Facebook's use of it. It is probably has a. a comparable number of deployments now. It's just that it's not for data. It's not for data reliability. I, I, you know, what are we going off with that Facebook thing, though? I mean, I'm not – if you're right, if you're right, then that probably is a massive deployment. But here's what I've heard. I've heard several things. I've heard that that story is old and out of date. True. I've also heard that those systems run on RAM. The storage is RAM-based. They're RAM disks, and they wipe them every 24 hours. I can see that as well. So, I, I mean – Oh, no, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to argue for ButterFS as a – data storage solution. But that was always our go-to about ButterFS. Like, well, Facebook. True. We had that. We Mm -hmm. had that. That was our go-to. But I don't actually know how much that holds up. And I mean, you don't see a a huge number of patches these days or that much improvement. Uh, But here's where I really think he starts to make a better point. Uh, He really kind of nails it when he talks about the, the fundamental issue that I always had with ButterFS, and I couldn't put into words as well as Brian does here, is... It, ButterFS should have been production ready from the beginning. It didn't have to be feature complete, but it should have been production ready. Cultures become self-perpetuating. And so I think, I think there's, there's a danger that you end up with, with ButterFSs over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I, I just wonder how many of these is it going to take before people kind of like connect the dots that there's actually – there, there are broader differences than simply the technology. What, uh, what befuddled me was how they didn't catch this sooner because the test case they did for it of, you know, create the RAID Z and like DD zeros into one of the drives and then run a scrub. Right. The FreeBSD handbook has every new ZFS user do that on purpose to watch <laughs> to, to yeah, right. show them how a scrub works and repairs the data. <laughs> like right. mm-hmm. our newbie right. guide has every user oh, man. do that exact <laughs> experiment to prove that ZFS works, and no one had ever right. done it with ButterFS ever. What? <laughs> right. Well, and I think that this is the idea. Well, you wouldn't do it because it's not ready for production yet. It's like yeah. that. It would be mean to do that because well, it's, it's like, not. Uh, it's like uh, no. That, that's just setting well, us up for failure. When also that doesn't it doesn't understand what software is is 
born ready for production or not. And if you the, – the software that is – especially software in the data path, the, the, it, it's not – you don't make it ready for production later. It's like security. You don't retrofit it onto an extant system. You either design it for production use or you – don't. And it's not something that you asthmatically approach. I mean, yes, there will be bugs in the system, but the bugs in a system that that is actually designed for production use, that is actually a salvageable system. Bugs mm-hmm. in a system that was never actually designed for production use or thought that production use was something that would be done later or by the little people, um, it, it, <laughs> it is not actually tenable. Um, and with ZFS, ZFS was – people don't realize this, that ZFS was designed to be used – in production from day zero. So it's it, just that it didn't have features in the beginning. So sure. I, mean, I think that's a pretty fair point, actually. And I think the, the lesson learned from ButterFS is a change in our perspective. Let's not wait for something to be production ready. Sure. It's just it's not 1997 anymore. We're just in a different. We're, we're in a different world now when it comes to this stuff. And uh, like well, it or not, people are putting production Linux is used, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it's happening on people's laptop. It's happening on people's phones, and it's happening on people's servers. Uh, if you want to, if you want to follow more, uh, episode one sixty three of the BSC Now program, the return of the Cantrell. That's a great episode. It was actually it was your suggestion because you'd watch and said we should talk about this. So thanks for uh, thanks for the suggestion because I I actually think. It's good to talk about our weaknesses. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's good to just be completely honest. But at the same time, we do need to call it when people are maybe spreading a little bit of FUD, especially around that bug on thing. That's just, that's just FUD. Mm-hmm. If you follow it closely enough, that's just straight up FUD. You, know, you want criti- to criticize us as a community at the, about ButterFS and say that maybe the culture of Linux uh, allows projects like ButterFS to succeed? Okay, maybe, but that just sounds like a really active, vibrant, huge worldwide community that's just many factors larger than the BSD community. Well, and ignores other subsystem communities as well as, you know, I mean, it's not like we haven't had successful production file systems before, and it's not that we won't have them again. But and we so we need the realistic criticism well, as well as an up to date assessment of the. Culture. And it's not like you can't get see you can't you can get ZFS right now. It's not like that's right. not yep. the, the the reality is Linux is such a natural force in the technology industry that if you want your product to be relevant on the server, it has to work on Linux, and that even is true for ZFS. But it was a really good interview, and there's a lot of good stuff they talk about, and uh, I hope. To have some of this very discussion with Brian in person at Meet BSD. Oh, hey, yeah, he's. Good. I think he's going to be there. The We're whole hear more about this. The the whole BSD now crew. Alan's going to be down there. Chris Moore's going to be down there. Producer Q Five Sis is going to be down there. I mean, like it's a it's a full BSD uh, now crew. Plus Brian's going to be there, and I'm going to be there. It's November 11th through the 12th. Here's what I decided to do. This is I haven't I have not mentioned this yet on any shows, but I've gotten uh, a few emails about it. I've got a couple of tweets about it. People are like, hey, can we meet up while you're in the San Francisco area? And uh, we really had this tight. Hadia and I we planned to be there for the 11th and the 12th, and then the other time was spent driving from Washington and back. And it was her idea. She said, you know what? Why don't we just let's just take a couple extra days. I'll take a couple of days off from work. Maybe Noah can fill in on a show and let's spend a little time down there and let's let's meet up with some folks. 
So uh, I will probably be also be in in the area the following uh, Monday or Tuesday. And what I'll plan to do is I'll get down there, I'll get meet BSD, get my head around that, and then I'm going to start tweeting out what my plans are. And if you're in the San Francisco area and want to meet up, email me chris at jupiterbroadcasting.com or tweet me even better at chris les. Let's start talking about that. It. Sounds awesome. Because uh, I kind of what I want what I would like to do is maybe rent a car or maybe Ben will let me let borrow his car an extra day if maybe and uh, drive into San Francisco and just. Hang out, and maybe people could show me some cool places, and maybe we'll shoot a little rover log and all that kind of stuff. I think it could be a lot of fun. So I'm going to take a couple extra days. Just you know, we have a lot of viewers. We have a lot. We have thousands and thousands of viewers in the California area, in the specifically in the San Francisco area. Totally. It's, and so if if you're in, if you you've ever wanted to see Chris Lass in person, and uh, maybe. Maybe uh, show me your favorite place to eat. Maybe I'll do like a tour. I'll go Alden Brown. I'll go just like I'll oh, go around yeah. and drink like uh, coffees from all the different places and have donuts and just get like all kinds of uh, grub on and then uh, record it all for the Roverlog. That could be fun. And uh, I think I think I'm going to be there Monday or Tuesday. And I'm going to take one of those days and use it for a meetup and one of those days to play the tourist thing and just like take a day off and actually enjoy the area. So that I'm hoping to have two extra days in San Francisco, and I want to use one of them to spend it with the audience and one of it to do the tourist thing. So I don't know which ones yet, but it'll be Monday and Tuesday, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll say more I'll probably on my Twitter account, at Chris LES. But if you're going to be at MeetBSD, I'd love to see you. Or if you're in the Berkeley area and want to meet up, let's do it. MeetBSD.com, by the way, if – I think I'm, I, I'm going to tell you, if you're going to go to one BSD event in 2016, I think this is the it one. It really seems like it. Now, there's some international ones that are pretty badass too, but if you're going to go to one in the U.S. this year, there, there's probably other great ones coming up, but if you're going to go to one, I think that might be BSD it. returns home. That's what they, pretty yeah, cool. Berkeley, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, Berkeley Systems Distribution, right? All right, so let's talk about our next sponsor, DigitalOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and use our very special promo code of absolute power and knowledge, DO Unplugged. It's one word. It's lowercase. You go create an account. You go in their dashboard, you apply it as your payment method. Now you're not putting a credit card in there. You're not putting your PayPal's in there or whatever's. They've got your bank. You're going in there, you're putting in DO Unplugged. You're getting a $10 credit. Actually, if you already have an account too and you've not used our promo code, you can also get a credit. What a deal. I know. DigitalOcean is super cool to let you write – they, they They've already have, got you. They didn't have to let you do no, that. No, not at all. That's really cool. And so that's kind of gives you an insight to what a badass company they are. They're a really great simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own super fast system on their infrastructure. They're all Linux. They use KVM for the virtualization, SSD for the backend storage. So everything's super fast. You know it. And you get to pick from all of the distros that you would run on a server plus free BSD if you're a BSD folk. And, 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 and there's some cool things you can do when you start playing with their block storage and ZFS. There is some cool yes, things you are. can do. But really, you can get started for five bucks. Five bucks a month. And if you use our promo code DO Unplugged, you get $10 two months for free. Whoa. You can get started in less than a minute. You'll get a really nice system. And they have an interface that even if you've never set up a server before, you'll be able to actually... It's if so you, easy. If you've never installed <laughs> Linux even, you could do it. You really, you really could. Yep. But... What, what I think is probably more noteworthy and remarkable about that is, first of all, they've managed to do this in a web application. Second of all, they managed to do it in a browser-compatible way that works like on your, on your phone. It works on your Linux box. You don't have to have Java installed. You don't You've have to have Flash terminal. installed. Yeah, you get a full HTML5 console access to your Ooh. rig. That's all nice. Yep. 
beginners or advanced users that have been setting up systems for decades are going to be happy with this. And then on top of that, if you even know how to poke at Ruby or PHP or Python, you can use their API. Like you can – if you just know how to poke. And they have tons of great open source applications you can just take advantage of already. It's amazing. It's a great service. And they're super fast and they got data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany, and India. So you can be like a boss all over the world. Just use our promo code DO Unplugged. I mean, it is so awesome to see how Linux and KVM can bring the fundamental technologies to a company where they can focus on the things like the API, the interface, the documentation, the community. Finally, somebody took advantage of all of it, and that's DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean.com, just use our promo code DO Unplugged. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So we were kind of kvutzing about this a little bit ago in the show, and we were talking about how most people in the enterprise don't give a single crap that the canonical live patch client is commercial software or that the back end is managed by Launchpad, which is commercial software. Right, right. They, they could, the, the businesses that are more than 10 people – Don't care. I, I've never met a single one of them that would care unless their business is Linux and open – like System76, they care. <laughs> right. I don't – but like there's like – unless you A lot of the enterprises, that's not what they're concerned about. If your business isn't open source in Linux, you don't, you don't give any shits. You really don't. And let's be honest with this. And, and uh, Mumble Room, you feel free to just disagree with me. But I thought this post over at NaughtyComputer.uk, which is a great domain name, uh, was pretty good. It says, the role of free software in a world that doesn't care. The free software movement is about personal and social liberties, giving the owner and the user of a computer control over it. But most people don't see the problem with a small number of multinational mega corporations having control over everyone's computers. They think Apple and Microsoft know what they're doing and they do a good job. So why would I need free software? I can see a lot of people's thoughts like that yep. or or even worse, they've never even thought of, heard of or conceptualized a world of free software. They only see a world of apps and commercial software. And I would suspect without – I mean I, I, would, I would find it very hard to dispute the idea that that, is, must, that must be the very vast majority of consumers. Mm-hmm. I will mean, I mean that's, a, that's a default, right? You need your next program. You, you buy it off the shelf. You get it for however long it's supported and then uh, you buy the new one. My lady friend is a, is, a, is a good example. Before she met me, I think she had heard Linux mentioned um, as the thing that – runs her server and she knew a couple of computer people that sometimes talked about yep. Linux but she didn't know that it was free or that it was open and she didn't really ever even consider that there was such a thing because everything else in our life that we interact with is productized, yep. commercialized, you need a specialty thing, you got to get by that model. It's branded, it's it's marketed. Yep. So you don't even your mo your mind doesn't even shift to that mode to understand that there could be something like free software that's contru- that's created not by a company but by a system of volunteers who are each scratching their own itch. That idea isn't something that you just consider. You have to be introduced to mm-hmm. it. And like my lady friend, when I introduced her to it, she well, this is obviously the better way to go. This is <laughs> unquestionably even as a, I mean, I'm a small business person with like a couple of people working here and. This seems like an obviously good choice for my business, but wow. until you understand and see it, you don't you don't even conceptualize it. 
So what is the role of free software in a world where that is perhaps arguably the reality? Yep. Malmarum, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think the problem is that they don't understand the whole computer thing. It's not the thing that they don't care, they don't understand. So it's some kind of self-protection to pretend that Microsoft and Apple care for them. Hmm. Because you, so you trust in the I mean? brand, you trust in the name. Because, yeah, because, because you, really, you, I mean, you, if you they screwed it up so bad, they'd be out of business. Yeah, but if you don't know, you, you know how to drive a car, but you don't know what the car is doing. You don't know the whole motor. I don't know how to build everything. the car. No, I couldn't replace you my car's know. computer. No. So, so it's the same thing for a computer user. A normal computer user does not know what the computer is doing. He can only consume software hmm. and use software, but doesn't know how it works. So it's, yeah. Mosenrath, your thoughts? Okay, so um, if you can see in the, the, the chat room there, we've been discussing it as well, but a lot of it is off of, it's not a matter of really an active not knowing or an active not caring what they see is as um the previous person said they just see a product they use it and as i was saying to others does it work yes then they use that product they don't know if it's free they don't know if it's not free in terms of free as in speech not free as in beer as that is one of the main things that comes up quite often but in terms of see cult was just it it's like the self-free software commercial software could be free or proprietary right it's a matter of does it work it does okay i'm good i'm out they're not worried about any of the other stuff because they know full well microsoft doesn't care about them apple doesn't care about them you know what those companies care about what companies always care about your pocketbook your wallet the moment that you open it up they are happy to talk to you you close it up the conversation ends you go to something like, say, Cody or VLC, they say, we don't need your pocketbook. The person says, hey, I don't need to open up my wallet. Awesome. I'll use this. Excellent. Yeah. It works. Excellent. I'm out. Yeah. So um, this is where I find the absolute brilliant silver lining in this concept. Because so often as users who perhaps – are just solely consumers of open source software. Maybe you you download the latest distribution, you install all the great open source software, maybe you cavets online in a comment section about something not working, but you don't very often or if ever submit a bug. Perhaps you don't submit a patch upstream. You don't necessarily get involved in the mailing list. You primarily consume. But you do something else too. You likely advocate. You spread the word about Linux. Right. You show maybe a friend who gets intellectually curious. And it turns out that's fundamental to the survival of free software. And so as regular Linux users, we have an absolute vital role in the entire ecosystem of free software and its continuation and survival. And I don't, I don't think it's overselling it to say that this is one of the most important roles in free yep, software is so. advocacy and education. Now, how you do it, the people you do it to, that could all be argued. That's the nuance. Yep. 
But there is such an important place for advocacy still, even in 2016, even when Linux has taken over the cloud and networking and mobile. This is still a fundamental issue. And there are people who are not even in tech, who are not even necessarily tech heads or technologists who can see the benefits. It just has to be a certain person who's intellectually curious about these things right. or has a motivation to learn more. And if you, you know, look at Noah. Look how many people he switches to Linux in daily conversation just by like kind of just sussing out their needs. And, and yeah, well, here's how Linux could fix that for you. And here's how that, it could solve that for that you. Instant, right? Like you don't have to wait to talk to a sales rep. You don't have to. It's just it's there. It's your right to have it. It's yeah. You've always had it. You just didn't know. I and it, it make also I suppose this is self, this is very self serving I guess but it makes me very proud to to run a network that has many programs that talk about Linux and open source and BSD and and help people learn and discover more about it and make it useful in their daily lives because I really truly believe that advocacy is a crucial part to the free software ecosystem and if you've ever felt bad about maybe being a leech like that. If you've played that role or you can play that role, you are taking part. Now, you can do more at any time, and I encourage you to do so. But there, that is, there is something to that, Wes. I think that's pretty cool. And that, right there, brings us to the end of this week's episode of the Unplugged program. If you'd like to join us live, join us over at jblive.tv. Oh, when? What a great question. Oh, come on. Tuesdays. What? Well, yeah, of course. Of but course, what time? Tuesdays. Tuesdays. What time? You know, that's 2 p.m. Yeah, PST. Yeah, yeah. You could also get it converted automatically. At we have a magic robot. It just does it for us. Calendar page, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. You can send us in your thoughts, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Submit stories and community updates at linuxactionshow.reddit.com. And if you're on the YouTubes and you made it this far, give it a thumbs up. Come for on. Us. Come on. All right. We'll see you back here next Tuesday. So we're going to start giving these away or selling them. I'm not sure. These look amazing. Yeah, I think it's a super great idea. I think you could probably sell a whole sheet of them. I don't think – see, Angela, I think she's just thinking about giving a few away at a time. But I think you could You could sell. probably just sell – yeah, I would buy I think, a sheet. Yeah, I would because then, then I just have them for my future keyboards. I don't want that window shame. All right, so I'm trying to cover up my super key. I got, I got mine on. It's hey, covered. I think I got it. It's a little tiny bit lopsided, but that's oh, look that's at my pop. That's so my fault. Mine, mine's my my super key actually had a circular indent to begin with, so I'm pretty happy. It's not great, but you see, that mine looks actually, like it fits, it fits almost in right in there, doesn't wow. it? Wow, yeah, that's nice. So, uh, yeah, that's our that's our super key. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, how's it look on yours? Actually, not too, not bad. too bad. I'd say it looks as good. I'd say it actually looks better than the Ubuntu sticker that's on the Librem 15. Yeah. So. I wonder how it would look if your keyboard lit up. Oh, your keyboard does light up. Not too bad. It Let's looks see. fine. Good. I was wondering if it would shine through, but yeah, it looks good.
I like it. Yeah, it does have a little bit of a shine, I'd say. Ah, uh, very good. Very good. So you approve then? Oh, man, this is great. Everyone should get them. It's funny because, you know, when you think stickers, you think big stuff. But that little tiny super key sticker is legit. And I hate seeing that little Windows key. I mean, I like, you know, most of the keyboards <laughs> that I have, are, yeah. they don't have them. I know, I know. You can't you, do anything about most of the laptops. I wish, you know, Microsoft, they really, they really, how, I wonder how they pulled that off. It really I would like well. to know this, the history of the Windows key and how they worked. Like, I, what I envision is... I envision like they they nailed a couple of manufacturers and then the industry just decided to to take off with it. It was or, easier to just have it all. I wonder. Yeah. Oh, look at that! DOS keyboard sells a Linux keycap bundle. That's awesome. Excellent. Seems to be a lot of people are getting into replacing getting keyboards where they can individually replace the keycaps, mm-hmm. which is none of my keyboards I can do that with. But I don't like any of my keyboards a whole lot except for my Logitech upstairs. Okay. Yeah. But like uh, that seems a lot like a lot of fiddling. But at the end, you end up with something you've crafted. You have great pride in it. You have to have a lot of. You have to have some free time, though. That's not something you have a concept of. Oh, I see. Yep. Theoretically, I can do that with my gateway uh, laptop. And, uh, really, it has keycaps on it. Huh? Yeah, I learned that the hard way uh, about six years back, and then when I went into a fit of rage and then accidentally popped the U key loose from the keyboard. <laughs> and so I, I had to quickly put it back on there before anybody yeah. noticed. All right, well, we got 10 Fridays left or nine Fridays left until Christmas. So you guys have enough time to get me a mechanical keyboard for Christmas out there. Mm. I kid. I don't. I would not. Well, actually, I would probably use one, but not in studio. So you'd never get to see me using it because it'd be too loud, I would assume. Yeah. You get one of the quieter ones. But then what's the point? Don't Just, they not feel as good? Well, I mean, there's there's many different... <laughs> actuation lever. You know, you can get lots of different feels. Uh, I have a, a code keyboard at home with the clear keycaps, which I like a lot. They're not too loud. I mean, I don't know if they'd be quiet enough for the studio, but I bet you could find something. And you can still be, you know, a lot of times so they just are, have are, nicer construction anyway. Are, okay, so, oh, 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 wait. Or they yeah. have, you know, a deeper, that you so are you, is deeper. are you telling me that I can, I, my understanding is that if you want the right feeling, like you want that old mechanical keyboard feeling from back in the early 90s, 80s, and 70s, or whatever the hell. You know, almost like clunk, clunk, clunk. I thought in order to get the right feeling, you had to have a certain amount of sound. I thought there was, you can't divorce the two, I thought. So I thought if I, as I begin to compromise on the amount of sound, I also compromise on the feel. Is that true? I mean, I think if you're trying to exactly recreate like the IBM buckling spring type switches, then yeah, maybe you do, but... I think there's a range of things that people like and that people appreciate and for different purposes, right? Like a lot of gamers like the Cherry MX Red style series where it's like a linear press. Um, so I think there's a wide range. You might not find one that's a, you might find, you know, like a loud one that you like more, but I think you can find something that's better than, say, that little Apple keyboard you've got over there. Yeah, although... Uh, I mean, but that I is like very the, portable. One so. thing, here's one, so I'll, uh, one thing I'll touch on there. So, I, first of all, I'm afraid of, of my own personality when it comes to quieter keyboards. I'll get there. But to the Apple thing, I'm not a huge fan of them, but I also don't they're, they're not the worst. I don't hate them. No, don't and hate one thing either. that if I was an Apple user, I think I would appreciate is, I'm not positive, but I think, I'm not sure if this is true anymore, actually. Maybe it's not true anymore, but for a long time, they, they had the same keyboard layout across the laptops and mm. their physical keyboards. So you could interchange, I mean, it was... It was that 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 muscle memory worked across a range of the products, which is a great idea. Right. Yeah. But going back to the mechanical keyboard thing, um, and I don't know if that's true anymore for Apple. But the, what here's why I don't want to get quieter keys. This is the type of person I am. I I, I have two modes. I don't give a I don't care about the quality of this thing, mm-hmm. or I care about the quality of it. 
Sure. I and if I care about the quality, you want of the it, very best. And and if I don't, what I'll do is I'll first buy the I'll buy the low level one, mm-hmm. then I'll buy the mid level one, and I'll try and I'll, I will try to stay there as long as I can. <laughs> and I will guilt myself. I will internally beat myself up for wanting the better one when I have already bought the low one and the mid one. And I'll fight with myself, and it'll be like this ongoing thing that steals brain CPU for days You're or constantly months. Assessing it and and depending background. on the price, sometimes a year oh, or you know. And then I finally make the go, and I love it. I I love it way way more. Like for example. Perfect example. I bought uh, the uh, the Rover, right? It yep. was a great price. I got it on, I forget, consignment, so I got a great deal on it. And it was a nice travel trailer. It was a mid-level travel trailer. And then once I realized that I actually liked living in a tiny space and that I liked the concept of RVing and, and I liked how I liked how it's I, I use less, I, I, I consume less, I liked all the things about it. And then it was... Well, now if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. I don't. I don't yeah. want to. And I didn't go out and buy like some three hundred thousand dollar diesel pusher. I mean, I, I have my limits due to budget, but I, I knew. I knew almost within the moment I knew I liked RVing. Mm-hmm. I knew then immediately I was going to be getting a Class A RV at some point because I'm not going to. If I know I can do better, and that same thing applies to production. Like I, if I'm working on, if I'm editing or I'm putting together something, and I know it could be a little better, I'm not going to stop there. I'll go till it's as best as I That's can get it. Right. And so I'm, I'm worried about with the keyboard thing is that if I start caring about that, I will really care about that. And then and then I'm really in a world of hurt because what do I do? Do I start replacing all my keyboards sure. and then yep. some keyboards don't feel right? So, so far, what I, have, what I have allowed myself to do is I have a keyboard that I really like to use okay. and I would be sad if it went away. But I, I don't let myself go any further in fear of. Have you found this to be true for yourself? Once you started looking into super nice keyboards, did you slip into a keyboard, like a keyboard snob range now? Yeah, I think I was ready to become a keyboard snob. I have not gone (laughs) as far as replacing everything. I think the next on my list is getting one really nice one for work. Well, and if you think about it, dude, like there are a few things in my life that my hands touch more of. Right. And like that's one of the things you do that you consider yourself good at, right? Like yeah. you're supposed to be good with computers. It's a huge and, yeah. part of my work. Mm-hmm. It's a huge part of my hobby. It's it's like it's such a fundamental thing. Oh God, now I'm starting to care. Yep. And I can also appreciate ah! that like it's hard to like you you, you have to know like all right, well if I'm going to do this like I'm I, you can't do it half assed, right? You're gonna you're gonna have to do it well, and that takes a lot of research and time. And, yeah. Like, Sometimes it's just you don't have time okay, for it. Okay, so I so somebody must have been listening to Coder Radio because this has been on my mind. Yeah, it looks like T three hit T three late in the uh, chat room is asking about. I have a keyboard upstairs. This is my favorite keyboard, okay. and it is a Logitech that runs Linux. And I can't remember if it's like a it's a gaming keyboard. I think it might be the G fifteen. Let me go look. Um, and it's an older no no that's not it. That's not the G fifteen. It's got a flip up LCD screen. And it's it's super old. I actually did. I'd actually used it as a runs Linux once on last because oh, really? I mean, how could I not? Right. Yeah. The damn thing actually runs Linux with That's a little amazing. flip up screen. And it's supposed to have like these widgets that interact with your computer. And there is some Linux software. So here is a version of it. This nope, that isn't it either. But it, it looks kind of like this with an LCD screen. It's a Logitech. I can't remember, but it is. It has a great feel to it. It's not all the way. Uh, crazy, but I really like the position. Here it is. This is it right here. I really like the positioning of all of the keys. I like the one of the things I really like about it is it has this roller knob right here that's sunken into the keyboard is that for, for volume. Yeah, and that's then a, nice. and then a dedicated mute switch, and then logical playback controls that are laid out like they normally would be on a player device with play, pause, and skip tracks right there. I see, like you'd find on your stereo or whatever. Yeah. So this is the Logitech G19. 
And I don't even think they, oh, they make newer ones. Hmm, interesting. And uh, I don't know about any more, but the version I have, which does run a little warm, has a Linux, a Linux computer in there to do all the little widgety That's stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Some ancient, old version. Oh, God. I'm sure. I can only imagine. It'd be so fun to find out. Let's see. The new version, oh, they don't even tell me the price because Amazon doesn't sell it directly. But it looks like, oh, you can get it used from a reseller for 100 bucks, but new, it's 280 290 Whoa. Here it is. Yeah, I, I think I remembered spending quite a bit on this. But, you know, looking back, looking back at it now, I have had it for a, long a time. really <laughs> long time. I mean, I, I, I bought the first version that they years ago, and so I think the investment paid off. You and for 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 the here's the idea mm-hmm. is while you're working on the LCD screen you're looking at your uh, you're looking at your CPU usage you're looking at your memory stats like it's a little mini top I screen. I do like that. That's neat, right? Or yep. temperatures and of course they have a whole bunch of shitty software that makes it work automatically with Windows. But there were mm-hmm. ways eventually to get it work on Linux. But you know what? I I have not. I probably haven't bothered setting that up in two three years. That I could think, see that really handy if you could just like redirect one terminal's output to yeah, it. Yeah, um, like, mm, one of the other things TV. you could redirect to it was VLC. <laughs> so you could redirect VLC That's playback awesome. on the LCD screen. Wow. Yeah, which was so cool for like just watching a little video or mm-hmm. something. Also, playback you could uh, you could see the like the track information stuff like that for like maybe a, if your music application supported that. It was nice. And so notifications, a, notifications oh. could go down there too. But again, I, I don't even know if it works anymore because I probably haven't bothered setting it up for two years. Is the version today I just duct tape my phone to the top of your yeah. keyboard and just sit there? Actually, dude, that's exactly what I use that screen for a lot <laughs> is because it, the screen rotates up and down. It, it, and I, so I have it pivoted up oh, and I lay, my, I lay my, sc- my <laughs> cell phone on it and it's the perfect cell phone holder that's right awesome. there on my keyboard. <laughs> oh, man. That's great. <laughs> that's funny you say that. Well-designed <laughs> technology. May I jump in here? Yeah, yeah. There, there is indeed a software again, GNOME 15 it's called. Uh, before there was the GNOME 15 daemon, daemon but uh, that's not maintained anymore. So now they use GNOME 15. You can have a look at GNOME 15 org. But you have to compile it yourself. It's not in the repository ah. any distribution I used. I gave it a try. I have a Logitech um, speaker. Okay. There's, mm. The Z11 or Z, I don't remember Z11, I think. And you can use the GNOME 15 uh, software to display the same information you talked before, CPU oh, cool. usage and all that stuff. I do but like that. To, I do too. Yeah, that's quite cool. It's you quite know, cool. Be, I love you know be the coolest geek project ever, and I wish I could remember stuff when I say this, uh, would be to have a way to wire out. Do you ever watch Star Trek Voyager? Absolutely. Okay. Do you remember when they Are built you making the making a bioneuter gel pack over there? <laughs> Good reference, man. No, do you remember when they built the Delta Flyer mm-hmm. and they put the uh the physical toggle switches in there that were like the ones from their holodeck program? Yep. And uh, the Captain Protons type stuff. And it, it was so it was this twenty fourth century technology that had a what we would see as touch interface, right? Yeah. Normally would. Yeah, it had more like a 1920s style physical toggles and stuff like that. I would love to take like from a, like a old old used parts store or something where you can get like voltage meters and stuff and, and be able to hook those up to an interface on a Linux box that would correspond the uh, the, the little needle to CPU usage. So I could have oh, physical boxes yes. with like needles moving to rep- represent CPU usage. I think that'd be so cool. Yep. 
or like Nixie tubes spilling out things. Oh, and God. Digits. I'll totally rather actually go Nixie tubes because then you can actually change up what it is a right. little more. Yeah, that'd be really cool.